0: I'm Kate. I'm Callie. We're two friends who met in an Early Modern
1: History MA. Welcome to the Six Queens Podcast, where queenship reigns supreme.
0: We've actually made it to the last episode of the Motherhood series. I mean, we have specials coming, but this is like the last kind of regular episode. I'll admit this one was the one that I was kind of excited for all series because I feel like we've been building to it. And this one is the one that we're going to be talking about the memories of the three of our queens who had children who then became ruling monarchs in their own rights. So Catherine and Mary, Anne Boleyn and
1: Elizabeth and Jane Seymour and Edward. This is the appropriate one to finish the main bulk of this series off with. Because so it's just I just said, like, you know, we started with with Margaret Beaufort and her role in influencing, you know, Henry VII. And, you know, it's like we've kind of taken a little bit of her with us along the way and kind of come full circle and, and how these three Tudor queens are, are remembered by their children.
0: Where this episode will really tie everything together is that all of these women were really striving to make their mark through their children. And in this episode, we're going to see how they did that and how they were remembered for it. And then sort of consequentially how we remember them for it. Because guess what? The reigns of their children really did a lot to influence uh, public memory as well and uh, historiographical memory, how we remember them today. We assume to some extent that you all listening have a certain degree of prior knowledge before finding us. But just so we're all on the same page, a reminder that Henry VIII was succeeded by all three of his children, despite his best efforts. Uh, The girls were there too. His son, Edward, immediately succeeded him upon death. And then Edward, after a bit of a scuffle, came Mary. And then after Mary came Elizabeth. So the three of our queens who had Henry's children were also the mothers of ruling monarchs of England, which I think is a kind of unique position that, um, you know, obviously when, when all three of these women gave birth, they expected to be giving birth to the future ruler.
1: But all three of them, that actually did come true because it's quite frankly bizarre you don't really get another family like this with six wives and all and uh, three of them producing monarchs and and I think the thing that is so interesting to me with this is it kind of encapsulates like how bright the Tudors burned but how quickly they also burnt themselves out because again you've got three children going on to becoming monarchs and then it all ending with one of those children where it had such a potential, I think, if you look at Henry, for longevity. Because when you think about it, the main conflicts of these
0: three children, I mean, and then they become adults, but let's call them the children for now, um, are the same conflicts that their mothers went through because there was so much baggage attached to these kids and what they went through. And I mean, for Edward, why he even existed, In the first place that of course that carries through into the reigns of these three monarchs and that'll be an interesting thing that we'll see throughout the episode is how these people how these kids are being pulled in different directions by the memory and the influence of their mothers who arguably were more important to them in terms of establishing their identities than
1: their father was and I think with Mary, especially, she had a chance to get to know her mother and bond with her and emulate her, I think, in many, many ways. Before we hit record, we were talking about how
0: to organize this one. And we came up with the solution that we really don't have a ton to say about the relationship between Edward and his mother's memory, just because... Not only did he never know her, but he also, he died young. He died when he was a teenager. So we're going to start with that just to kind of not get it out of the way, but you know what I mean. Um, Because then in part two, I think we're going to have the much more interesting discussion of how Mary and Elizabeth uh, interacted with their mother's memories and the kind of contrasting ways in which they did so. So yeah, starting off with Edward also known as Edward the sixth
1: in terms of this the I think the story that we want to tell today it does absolutely make sense to start with Edward and like you said it's not getting him out of the way he just is a little bit tricky from from the get-go with Edward Jane is also almost kind of revered as this saintly figure who can do no wrong she's seen as the Henry's true love you know she was the one that gave him a son just you know died too soon I know we touched on
0: this subject before, but worth repeating here that Jane is so often sort of labeled as Henry's true love, the one that he really loved. And people like to talk about, you know, well, what would have happened if, you know, he had grown tired of her or whatever. But Jane's greatest insurance was Edward. I mean, if she had lived, she would have been the mother of Henry's son And that would have gotten her a long way. Um, Even if he grew tired of her as a person, she would still have a spot as the mother of the heir to the throne and Henry's son. So when we talk about him, quote, loving her the most, that's that's why is because she was the woman who was going to further the Tudor dynasty. And how do we know that? because in death, that's exactly what Henry does, is he puts her on this pedestal of being the mother of the next generation of Tudors and Henry's true wife, because she was the one who gave him what he wanted so badly. For example, there's a mural that once existed at Whitehall Palace, which again, I think we've talked about before, but it shows the generations of Tudor monarchs. So it shows Henry VII standing beside Elizabeth of York, and then it shows Henry VIII, and the consort that he chose to be painted next to is Jane Seymour, because Jane Seymour is the mother of Henry's heir. This is the royal couple that will continue the Tudor dynasty. In the same way, another painting I know we've talked about before, sorry, there's a large dynastic Tudor painting that is now at Hampton Court Palace, and it shows Henry enthroned with Edward beside him Edward's you know a boy but he's being kind of marked as the heir to the throne and though Catherine Parr was the queen at the time she is not sitting beside Henry on his other side it's actually Jane Seymour so you very neatly have this little family group to show everybody this is the future of the Tudor dynasty Henry and Jane's son Edward this is the the little royal family here even
1: though at that point, Jane had been dead for many years. Even though we've spoken about those paintings before, you can use them in so many different contexts. So, and like, that that's a wonderful thing about art. It, it, they tell a very interesting story about, like you said, Jane's position and about Henry's attachment towards her and uh, the position that she held as the, the, the one who finally gave him a son. Edward then
0: grew up with that image of Jane as this heroic saintly woman he was taught that i think he was somehow more special not only because he was the male heir obviously in status he is higher than his sisters but also because he is jane's son Um, i mean that's the message being conveyed certainly to mary and elizabeth is uh they they are not in this little royal family in the middle of the painting they are outside of it um, so Edward would have been, I think, very conscious of that. It's just a shame that we don't have any real evidence as to what he thought. Like um, with with the others, we have, there are more links between them and their mother's memory. Whereas Edward, he mentions um, in, he wrote this weird journal diary thing where it's it's written in third person and it's almost like a personal chronicle of edward's reign and he mentions that jane died giving birth to him so it's not like he wasn't aware of his own personal history he clearly dwelled on it to some extent but we just don't know emotionally how it would have impacted him or if he had any kind of moments
1: of longing for this woman uh we we just don't know I think to us, it would make sense that, um, like, now if you were a diary keeper to write down how you feel about that. But as you mentioned, the way Edward's written it is almost like a chronicle of himself. So if you're writing it for the sake of prosperity, then I don't think that I'm really sad that I never got to know my mother kind of thing doesn't fit with that kingly idea. So it's almost like he's writing it as the public facing future monarch rather than having any personal attachment unfortunately it is as close to edward as we are going to get but
0: it's not quite close enough we'll i know we'll talk about this more at a future date cuz i can i can already see the episodes forming in our minds but one of the perks of being queen was that your family is elevated with you and when jane was elevated to the queenship her two brothers edward and thomas came with her and they ended up being quite prominent in Edward's life. Uh Edward Seymour became Edward the King's Lord Protector when he was young and Thomas Seymour that whole thing. Very descriptive that that. <laughs> we all know if you don't stay tuned. So Edward would have had the memory of Jane with him in the form of her family and people who potentially would have told him about her you know people who he felt loyal to because they were related to him even if he didn't know the person who connected them that was probably her biggest legacy on edward's life because you know as we as we see both of his uncles influence his reign quite a bit they become very powerful people
1: you know at at a very basic level he was their ticket to future advancement and to kind of future kind of being involved in those um inner circles of power so it it makes complete sense that you know on the one hand they're thinking strategically and they're thinking okay we need to kind of keep keep him close but at the same time I, I suppose as well that's the last thing that they have of their sister on a sentimental level if you can talk about the Seymour these two Seymour men in sentimental terms not to sound cynical I think it is less that and more the power thing but you never know it's nice to be able to kind of consider both sides of this On the whole, though, this is what we mean when we say there's
0: not much to talk about with Edward and Jane other than Jane's memory was kept alive in those ways. And he was allowed to remember a version of her, if not her as a person.
1: first arrived on the throne of england in uh 1553 she's not messing around i think it's i think it's fair to say that when mary first comes to the throne she's not messing around with what she tries to it like what she does achieve with instantly recognizing her mother and honoring her mother's memory in terms of waiting a long time to vindicate her
0: Mary has had a very long time to think about all of the ways in which she would like to vindicate her mother. So yes, she is wasting no time.
1: She, she is on it. And I think, I think this kind of speaks to the, like we just said at the start, you know, um, Mary had the most time with her mother. She had the biggest kind of personal contact with her and that biggest, um, uh, would have had a bigger influence on her in life. What we have to bear in mind at this point, technically, Technically, when Mary comes to the throne, she is an illegitimate child. Coming to the throne, your position is going to be a bit precarious and somewhat people can call your right to reign into question, should they want to. And especially for someone like Mary, who's coming to the throne in a Protestant country as a what's that now I hear you say Catholic. Yes, well done. So, um, what the first one of the first things Mary does when she becomes queen is she puts into law that her mother and father's marriage was valid thereby making her legitimate i mean since she was about 16 mary has been screaming
0: as loud as anyone can hear that this is what she believes Uh, i mean her famous quote to anne boleyn was every time anne boleyn tried to get mary to acknowledge her as queen mary would Play the game of being like, I know no other queen but my mother or, oh, sorry, I can't have received a, a missive from the Queen of England because that would be my mother. You know, she was always making it very clear. Again, it's it's no surprise that she comes in kind of guns blazing and says, this is what we're going to do. We're going to establish my legitimacy. We're going to make sure that my mother is honored in a way that makes sense for her. And you don't get anyone fighting her on it um it's not a controversial thing I think everyone is sort of like
1: yeah that was kind of a mess and we understand your position she she does two things that I like so the first thing that she does I like is um when she's gathering support for her to come to the throne and to um and to substantiate her claim to be queen she does a really powerful thing and she capitalizes on Catherine's memory she went to those areas where Catherine's memory was strongest amongst the people there and she said will you effectively something along the lines of will you support my claim to the throne and they said yes out of reverence to your mother i think if we're talking about memory we also have to kind of remember uh, look at how they use their memories to their own advantage as well um and to kind of get them to where they wanted to be because without doing that, without being able to garner that support, I think that, especially with Mary, her cause would have been lost or it would have been a lot more difficult for her to win, win that crown. So I think that is a really interesting thing that she did and a very clever way that she used that memory as well.
0: Well, and I mean, the other thing that Mary could bank on in terms of her mother's memory was, or the memory of what had happened to her mother, is that most of Europe supported... Mary um, and and sympathize with her claim because they sympathized with her or because she was related to them through her mother. Uh, Catherine had a lot of contacts. She was related to some of the most powerful people in Europe, namely her nephew, Mary's cousin, the Holy Roman Emperor. Yeah, cool that she was doing it in East Anglia, especially, um, you know, in the immediate sense of like, hey, I need an army to help me take London like tomorrow. Can you help? but on the world stage too she knows that she's backed by some of the biggest powers in europe simply because of who her mother was so yeah like of of course mary is using her mother's memory she would be
1: foolish not to yeah that name is getting you invited to the parties like she's getting you behind that velvet rope (laughs) which brings me to point number two she was able to very she was very clever in Re- reclaiming Catherine's memory in public, uh, in the kind of public opinion, and kind of by capitalising on writers who were favourable to her, Catherine became such a contentious figure in England that did not stop people being vocal about supporting her or um, writing about her. And one person in particular who we know Mary was fond of, and um, we know had a presence in England, um was her true to vivette. And he talks about Catherine in such glowing terms that um, he later turned around to Mary and said that she should be proud to be Catherine's daughter because while she suffered greatly, she was still in great spirits. So during Mary's reign, she actually had it for the first time published into English. It, it sends a very clear message that she is reclaiming that that um, Catherine, in not just personally but very very publicly as well.
0: And you have to hand it to them; it sticks. Because when you think about Catherine, I mean, the earliest dramatic portrayal I can think of for Catherine of Aragon is um, Shakespeare and Fletcher's Henry VIII, where Catherine is very much the main character, tragic figure. Like, it's a really great role for uh, women actors because it's this like really moving performance. It could be the performance of your career, and that's as early. That's you know, less than if not a hundred years after Catherine has died and from there on catherine is always being portrayed as the wronged woman the strong steadfast slighted woman not necessarily a victim but not necessarily a weak person so mary's you know crusade to make sure that her mother is remembered that way as the queen that mary wanted her to be gotta hand it to him it worked that's how i think of her yeah I want to mention, too, like we, we touched on the kind of um, the political ways that Mary paid homage to her mother when she became queen. I want to talk about more about the emotional, because I think more than the other two, more than Edward and Elizabeth, like you said, Mary has such a strong emotional connection to her mother purely because they knew each other <laughs> And, and Mary got to spend time with Catherine. And then, of course, everything that ended up happening only, I think, strengthened their love. I mean, if you are forcibly being kept away from your mother for years, it's going to do nothing but strengthen that devotion. And I think it's really touching the ways then that you see that manifest once Mary is an adult through faith is a big one like that loyalty not only to catherine you know telling anne boleyn i know no other queen but my mother but also staying true to her mother's religion and i mean i know her father's religion but even at this time catherine had become such a symbol of the conservative religious faction in england that mary certainly also she saw it as the way to stay loyal to her mother was never to waver in her devotion i mean to the point where she got in trouble big time for it during edward's reign when edward was really pushing uh reformed belief
1: but then at the same time it's so interesting to me that ultimately it's the the thing that did mary the biggest disservice when we think about her her her, her as and, you know kind of popular culture and I I know it's an idea that's kind of waning in the historiography and things like that but you know you say Mary the first what's the first thing you think of bloody Mary so it's interesting to me I think that that's such that love and devotion then when you then get which is what it was when you come down to it, it helped tarnish her reputation I think it's an the, the biggest oxymoron I think I could possibly think of
0: but then to the loving daughter you know the the emotion that's tied into mary remembering her mother um so mary having concrete memories of the woman that she had lost and wanting to do more to honor her and their their mother-daughter bond so the one that i'm thinking of the most that actually kind of you know it makes me sad to think about is that mary when she died actually wanted to be buried with or near her mother. As we know, Catherine was buried at Peterborough Cathedral. She was buried in the tomb of a dowager princess of Wales rather than a queen of England. We talked about this on uh, the special where we talked about their graves. And then Mary today is buried God, this is so bad. She's buried underneath Elizabeth I at Westminster Abbey. So Elizabeth has this big tomb with a marble effigy on top, and it's grand and wonderful. And then, you know, somebody says, by the way, Mary is also here. And you'd have no idea if nobody told you that, because it's very clearly Elizabeth's tomb, and Mary's just dumped there, too. Originally, Mary's intention, as as stated, you know, when she died, was for her to be buried at the chapel in Greenwich and for Catherine to be moved from Peterborough and reinterred next to, if not in the same tomb as Mary, where they could be together forever. You know, having been kept away for so long, they could have, I think she, she specifically said tombs honoring us. So, the, you know, the inference is clear, is as we should be honored as Queens of England. It just makes me sad. That never happened when that was so, that was such a personal way for Mary to reconnect
1: with her mother. Is now we're going to be together forever. Yeah, I, I think it's just the biggest blow that you could possibly give someone who's gone through, both of them actually, that have gone through so much because all they wanted was to be together, or all Mary wanted was for, since the age of 16. And like in Catherine's
0: final letter to Henry, a, another heartbreaking thing. <laughs> is she specifically tells Henry that she's going to miss her daughter. Like, they've been requesting the the chance to see each other for years. Henry's been denying it. So in one kind of last final plea, Catherine tells Henry, I commend unto you our daughter. You know, please look after her. And Catherine saw Mary as her legacy. You know, if Henry wasn't going to honor that, Mary then tried to do it, honor her and, and right the wrongs. And then... Yeah, Elizabeth. We don't know why Elizabeth didn't do it. We could probably guess several reasons why, but it it never happened. Every once in a while, I think historians are allowed to acknowledge the just kind of base human yes. emotion of it. You try you try not to do it. You try not to kind of put your emotions onto people. It's hard though. Honestly, that's the problem. It's hard with this. I mean, you 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 read about this and you read Catherine's letter and you read. Mary in her will saying, All I want to do in the absence of a husband who really didn't care much for me and s- siblings who really didn't care much for me, I want to be with my mom. And it still didn't happen.
1: Heartbreaking. I think feelings are appropriate and they're also necessary. Because I think sometimes when you're talking about facts being facts, you forget that facts are also people.
0: And Mary gets such a bad rap sometimes yeah. for acting on her emotions and you know her policies which we think of today as being very controversial were driven by that need to honor her mother honor her faith and therefore her mother so i think to you know we throw in the woman factor a lot of people are like well she was very reactionary she was acting on her emotions and she was bitter you you get it though right like you know when we frame it like this you think Yeah, of course she was trying to honor her mother after everything that they had gone through. Of course she was loyal. Of course she was determined to right all of these wrongs. So, And I think it's easier to understand her motivations a lot more and see how Catherine's legacy really is her daughter and that, that steadfast loyalty that she gave to her daughter. Interesting, then, is when we transition over to talking about Elizabeth, Elizabeth does kind of the opposite of everything that Mary did. In that, Mary, when she became queen, suddenly was like, I have a checklist that I have been making of all of the wrongs that I would like to right now, and then all of the things. And whereas Elizabeth steps into the queenship, and she is the child of the first queen to have been tried and executed in English history. She is legally illegitimate. How are we going to make this work? And so her strategy looks a lot different than Mary's.
1: Yeah, I, I think the hand that Elizabeth has been dealt is a lot more complex than Mary's. Like we were
0: saying, Mary kind of has this bank with Catherine of she's a... Revered figure, um, Europe loves her. Europe's related to her. Elizabeth does not have that, um, and in terms of popular memory, had never been too much of a popular figure. So Elizabeth has to navigate this very carefully. She doesn't, interestingly, do a similar thing to what Mary did, where she doesn't establish an act that says that her parents' marriage was legitimate. So technically, she never undoes. Her illegitimacy. What Elizabeth does instead is she has an act which cancels out any, quote, contrary and repugnant statements made about Anne. Because there was a lot of um, parliamentary record that says some not nice things about Anne, you know, giving in to the wanton desires of her body and, you know, succumbing to carnal lust and everything. That's a bit awkward. We're going to get rid of that. But that's really the only way that very openly Elizabeth acknowledges Anne. Because like we said, it's, it's very dangerous to do so. You don't necessarily want to call attention to it. There's no grand plans to move Anne out of her unmarked traitor's grave at the Tower of London. Because you don't necessarily want to remind people that that is a thing. You know, She has to be very careful about what she draws attention to. Because Anne is always going to be
1: a liability for Elizabeth. With Elizabeth, not enough time has passed, you know, in terms of, you know, one or two generations of people have passed by the time she's coming to the throne, that she can start to reclaim Anne's memory publicly, if that makes sense. But also at the same time, it is a clever thing of addressing the elephant in the room, of saying, yes, that is my mother. We're not going to continue saying these things about her. That's all I have to say on the matter. Uh, because it's Elizabeth, though she
0: does something, and then it's kind of <laughs> contradicted or negated by another. Why thing. wouldn't it be? Why so wouldn't it be? That's that's the theme when you study her life in her early queenship and in her entire early life. Really, um, she's grown up, you know, being labeled like Shepwy would call her like the little concubine and the little whore and stuff like that. So she's always been tainted by association. So as a young woman and a young queen, like in the first, you know, handful of years of her queenship, she is playing that game, that strategic game of, like you said, just enough to make sure that, you know, my back is covered, but we're not making too much of a show of it, except she starts to give these little nods to the memory of Anne, and it's never really black and white clear. It's a lot of circumstantial stuff that we have to attach meaning to, kind of in retrospect, but it is there. So, like, one of the most profound ones I can think of is during Elizabeth's coronation procession. Um, So, as we talked about in the coronation special, there's a procession from the Tower of London to Westminster, where the actual coronation happens. And along the way, the monarch stops to view these, like, little plays and tableaus that are put on by the city of London and one of the ones during Elizabeth's procession included like sort of a visual like family tree of the Tudor dynasty so there were actors who were playing Henry VII and Elizabeth of York and then interestingly there was an actor playing Henry VIII and his queen who was Anne and I can't imagine what it must have been like for the London public to suddenly be like Oh wait, we like her now, you know. She's been we've been spending so much time vilifying her that suddenly she's is (laughs) Is this back? Is that back? Like, (laughs) you know, other little things too, like Anne's falcon, um, her her symbol, her queenship symbol, was used and incorporated into Elizabeth's symbology as well. It was embroidered on stuff. It was painted on. You can see it kind of next to her coat of arms sometimes. So again, like. You have to. We have to attach meaning to it
1: as historians, but it's there. It's not hidden. I think it's one of those interesting things. It's hidden unless you know where to look.
0: While we're kind of comparing her experience to what Mary did, I think another interesting parallel is that Mary is so often attached to Catholicism and her mother's religion and being influenced in that direction. I mean, she didn't take much influencing, but Elizabeth was famously wishy-washy about all of that kind of stuff. And so she took a lot more influencing. It's interesting then to see the reform clerics, um, the the Protestants, as we would call them, pulling Elizabeth in their direction, trying to get her to settle the religious question by favoring their side of it. invoking Anne's memory in the way that the Catholics would have invoked Catherine of Aragon's. To them, Anne was a Protestant martyr. She was a hero of the Reformation. I mean, the English Reformation literally happened for and because of her. So they saw her as a champion of their cause. And they thought, if we need to get the queen now to support us, what's a really great way to do that by saying that this is what your mother would have wanted. You're continuing your mother's legacy if you favor us. And there's so many examples of um, all of these reformed clerics coming to Elizabeth and saying, Oh, I knew your mom back in the day. Oh yeah. Your mom was, was such a saint. She was such a godly and charitable woman and you'll be just like her. Like
1: they're totally using Anne. If it suits the cause, go, go with it. You know,
0: My favorite thing about it, though, is that because of all these Protestants who are trying to brown-nose Elizabeth into supporting their cause, is you get this image of Anne as a very saintly person, a very godly person, somebody who is deeply invested and interested in the cause, the religion, and saving her soul. And it's this complete shift from Anne being seen as a completely immoral person simply because of who her daughter has become. I mean, to the point that um, there was basically a, quote, official biography commissioned about Anne Boleyn, kind of setting the record straight about who she was. It was called The Chronicle of Anne Boleyn, and it was written by a man named William Latimer, who was a Protestant, and he knew Anne. He was part of her sort of team of chaplains when she was queen. And the official status sort of indicates that Elizabeth had something to do with it, whether she commissioned it or she just approved it, we we don't know. But the introduction, the dedication to that work is really interesting because not only is does he say he's writing this to celebrate who he believes was such a godly and important woman, you know, usually adjectives that we would reserve for somebody like Catherine of Aragon. He's also saying that he's doing it specifically to give some comfort to her daughter
1: like you said, it's, it's easier for her to accept the positive about Anne. And for those who have been negative about her in the past, it's, you know, you can, you can kind of chalk it up to the conservative religious factor or people who didn't support Anne and Henry's marriage, anything that she wants to, and then what she could like you said, what she can take away is the positive. And, I mean, in the same way that, like, we saw Edward being close
0: to his maternal family, his uncles, rather than his royal family. Elizabeth was very much closest to her Boleyn relatives. Um she was really close with the children of Mary Boleyn, um, the Carey siblings. So you can see that there she wants that attachment. She wants that familial comfort of being close to this woman who she doesn't really know. But like you said, you have to pick and choose. So personally, yeah, it would be really nice to have all of this nice stuff surrounding you about your mother. But politically, we need to be smart about it. To that end, I think that probably the most telling piece of evidence that we have as to how Elizabeth felt about it all is the locket ring that she had. It's quite a famous locket ring now. Um, It's been on exhibition a couple times, but it's tiny. Elizabeth had really tiny fingers, so it's really, really small. But you can make out the two cameo portraits inside this locket. one is of Elizabeth herself and the other one is of a woman in a black dress and a French hood and if that sounds familiar to you it's probably because the most famous portrait of Anne Boleyn of course she's wearing a black dress and a French hood so balance of probability is that this is her mother and if that's the case then it's very telling I think that Elizabeth kept a portrait of her mother locked away in a tiny locket and a ring that she always wore
1: it's such a powerful thing as well and like you said it is it is tiny there, there's that longing there like and as you just said that familial bond that she's craving so to have her mother kept close to her like that is 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 really really lovely
0: a lot of people consider her to be kind of in a twist of ironic fate, um, Anne's legacy. You know that this woman who was executed for being a traitor and essentially, I think it's fair to say, died because she couldn't give Henry a son, ended up having arguably, you know, one of the, the, the best English monarchs to ever exist. So there's, there's a whole kind of poetic justice in that story. And I think at the center of it is the fact that Elizabeth remained loyal
1: we want to be petty about it the ultimate revenge on those who got rid of her yeah really though these ladies got their dues it just it took their daughters to to
0: make it happen lest i continue (laughs) to talk about elizabeth and ann for years fun fact that was my dissertation if it sounded like i know a a stupid amount about it that's actually (laughs) what my dissertation was about so before there was tracy foreman i know we kind of touched on this this theme of all of I like the idea that all of these women lost their children, but then ended up kind of regaining them in some way through the fact that they ended up ruling um, and that all of their memories were honored by their children. Either, you know, going, going from in the easiest way, Edward, um, you know, obviously your mother is going to be celebrated, to
1: Elizabeth doing it despite the odds. Like we said at the start, this is an unlikely story where you have three separate women, all of whom go on to have children who are monarchs of England. I think they all had their children ripped away from them in quite violent, brutal ways. The separation of Mary and, and Catherine for a prolonged period of time and literally being executed and Jane dying um as a result of childbirth. You know, none of these were particularly happy ends or fitting ends for such I think remarkable women. So the fact that they are survived by their children is very very fitting. pretty much wraps up season four and uh, like we were saying at the start it, it kind of it, it's felt like a long time getting it out to you all but I think this one's been so much fun to do I know, I know we've covered some pretty heavy stuff and it's not always been um sunshines and rainbows well I mean the golden war series wasn't sunshines and rainbows but this this is less so um but it's been so interesting and I think with some episodes it's been so much fun because you can get get the social history in there, even if it wasn't obvious, um, you know, in terms of looking at, you know, the medical history. And I think it's just a really fun lens to have been able to understand these women a little bit more and what they went through. You know, when when we first started, I think this doing this podcast, you know, our, our mission statement was looking at these women outside of the narratives of Henry and kind of looking at what binds them together more than separates them. And this is something that touches absolutely every single one of them um, in one way or another. Uh, Four of our queens had children,
0: um, you know, went through the process of conceiving and then giving birth to children. We didn't really talk about Catherine Parr's child here. Like, I know we talked about that she died in childbirth, but I just want to footnote that the child probably died in infancy. There's not much known about her, which is why we didn't discuss it. I just it suddenly occurred to me that I don't think we ever said that. But in this episode, we did get to see that three of our queens lived on through the reigns of their children. The other queens, the two other queens that didn't necessarily give for themselves were mothers in the sense that they were stepmothers to the three Tudor children. Uh, Catherine Parr probably more so than anyone having that effect on them as the, the, the mother figure that all of them, I think craved, or at least the the familial role of having somebody in your corner. It's hard and it's kind of reductive to talk about motherhood sometimes because when you're talking about queenship, it is the thing that all of these women aspire to because they have to. The chief role of being queen, unfortunately, is the production of a male child. So motherhood is the highest possible kind of rung of their ladder you know as we saw with jane seymour if you can have a boy then you're in but i think on a deeper more emotional level we've been able to see how it went beyond just this is what i'm supposed to do with my life and it, it became part of their identities uh they all loved their children even if they didn't really get the chance to know them it ends up being a very kind of unique experience for all of them but
1: one that they all share series four well, the main episodes of series four which is a fun thing to be able to say because just because the main episodes are over does not mean series four itself is over because we still have a bit more in store for you coming up um towards the end of uh, this year over the holiday season we will have a holiday special for you so watch this space and in keeping with the um, the trialling of our honourable mentions, um, especially in regards to motherhood, we are going to be closing out this series with an honourable mention of Bessie Blount. Come and have a listen. Um, that'll be coming to you sometime in 2024. We've got lots more in store for you and also coming to you at some point in 2024, series number five.
0: We have a few ideas of things we would like to do, but... Um... We think it might be fun this time to maybe get your guys' input and see where you at all like to go and the things that you would like to hear about and talk about. So look out for, um, you know, some posts. If you don't follow us on social media, especially Instagram, please do, because we'll keep you informed of our thought process where that is concerned. There might be a poll. We'll see. But yeah, it's definitely it's on the brain. It's on the way. And thank you for coming with us for another series. We really appreciate everyone who finds us every week, who has been following us since the beginning, who leaves us really kind messages. You are very appreciated. And we are having a blast doing this, especially as we're kind of getting into our groove now.
1: Um, Again keep an eye out on those socials for um, suggestions about what series five could be because if you can narrow it down for us so we don't end up with about three pages of different ideas with about 100 episodes per season that's not we're fine with that.